Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by my childhood friend Chris Dow. Top of the morning to you. And my adulthood friend Minty Booth. This doesn't concern you, citizen. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! Before we dive into the episode, we'd love to point you in the direction of our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Our3Cents is where you can find it. And you can find there all manner of amazing perks in exchange for some pennies of pledgery sent our way. Which we would hugely appreciate as it helps us develop the podcast and uh, continue expanding in the ways that, that you are just absolutely loving. I know it. Perks include deleted scenes and outtakes from all the episodes, full bonus episodes, custom artwork, access to the Our Three Cents Discord channel. It's great, and we would hugely appreciate it, so do please check that out. And for all of our other social media feeds, which we would also encourage you to check out, then go to linktr.ee forward slash O3C podcast. So, this week we have my fourth favourite video game of all time. Yes. But before we do that, it is time to return to the quiz. But before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz, (laughs) which we've been doing for Jonathan, uh, uh, so that he doesn't feel left out as our erstwhile quiz master. So, your question this week, Jonathan, is, Pokemon is the best-selling and most popular media franchise in the world. But can you name one? There's quite a lot these days, aren't there? No clues. I'm going to go for Bonsley. Oh, he's correct. Well done, Jonathan. That oh, is... marvellous. Yeah, that's a Generation 4 Pokemon, so that's another 50 points to you. Fantastic work. Oh. Onto a muscular 225 points. Big boys. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Minty. Over in the realms of the regular quiz, Chris has a one-point lead, which is... is um... Infuriating. <laughs> so, I'm very excited about this round, because I think it's going to be really, really good fun. I've called the round, A Thousand Words Are Worth a Picture. Okay. And what I've done for this is I have employed the services of a resident audio describer here in Wales, a young man by the name of Yoan Gwyn. Oh, Yoan. <laughs> Love that guy. Who makes his living in part as an audio describer for theatre. And I thought it would be a nice thing in this age where accessibility is becoming more obvious in video games and thankfully more common. I thought it'd be really good fun to see how you guys would fare hearing some of your favourite video games audio described to you. So what I've done is I have sent Yoan six images of the cover art of three of your games each from your top 100 list. He has provided me with some audio description of the cover art, and you've got to guess what the games are. Oh, boy. This is fun. <laughs> Here we go. Quiz. Quiz. 
So, first up, we have Minty. Minty, can you tell me what game Yoan is describing? God, I really fucking hope so. A frowning gentleman dominates this cover. He is wearing a helmet with a dark red trim. There are five other people present, and from left to right, an optically challenged gentleman, another of azure epidermis, a silver-haired lady in a sports bra, a grizzled-looking man with three protrusions on each hand, and a young lady who ran out of hair dye whilst colouring her hair from auburn to silver. <laughs> that is all. Oh. That is X-Men Legends. That is the correct answer. Well done, Minty. Well done, Minty. Fantastic. Okay, Chris, are you ready for your first one? I'm ready. A young brunette boy, highly fashionable in all white with red shoulder pads, fires a gun behind him, presumably aiming at the young blonde boy aiming a flying kick at his rear. They are chased by two cyborg men, looking as if Paul Verhoeven allowed Homer Simpson to design Robocop. Some sort of aeroplane-helicopter-gunship hybrid chases them all, and there is a soldier standing on the wing waving his fist in complete contradiction to the Health and Safety Act. <laughs> I think I think it's Gunstar Heroes. That is the correct answer. <laughs> yes. Well done, Chris. Fantastic. Well done. Top work. Top work. Okay, Minty, you ready for your second one? Yep. A man with a wooden mallet creates a stream of red that flies backwards over his head as two identical blue spores watch on in the hope that the red stream isn't human blood. On the left is a small, pale-faced, shocked-looking character wearing red. It carries a bucket of the red liquid above his head. No further questions, Your Honour. <laughs> what the hell? Um, gosh, I've got no idea. Um, I think I know it. No idea. Splatoon. That is not correct. And I'm actually going to give Chris a chance to steal. What do you think the answer is, Chris? I think it's Paper Mario Color Splash. That is the correct answer. Oh! Well done. Oh, well done, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Chris, are you ready for your second one? Yes. Here we have a man with a chin to make desperate Dan jealous. He rides an augmented Harley Davidson and behind him is a ball of flame that would make Michael Bay's stunt team proud. Yeah, there's not a lot else to describe here, lads. <laughs> I mean, he's wearing sunglasses, I suppose. Oh. <laughs> it is full throttle. That is the correct answer. Well done, Chris. Gosh. On fire today. Okay, Minty, your last one. Yes. This cover is adorned by people driving vehicles. None of them you would particularly wish to give you a lift home. A monocled old man firing a bonnet-mounted gun... Another man swinging a baseball bat at someone wearing questionable leopard print clothing. A lady more concerned with posing for the camera rather than looking at the road. And, well, Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Street Racer. Fantastic. It yes, is. correct. Okay, Chris, your final one. You ready? I'm ready. A yellow creature, unburdened of the curse of owning a neck, seems to be stepping towards us. He is resplendent in his red breeches and white bow tie. Behind him are some snowy mountain peaks and a bodybuilder who appears to have just realised that he has shat himself. <laughs> I, oh, I, I don't know. I think I'm going to have to just bank the extra point I got from Minty because I, I don't know this one. Minty, any, uh, any inkling of what that might be in a chance to steal? 
that one is Checky the Bear. <laughs> <laughs> Not correct, I'm afraid. The correct answer to that, Chris, you're going to kick yourself, it's Dynamite Heady. Oh my goodness, yeah. Oh. He doesn't have a neck. His head is floating. <laughs> yeah, he is totally unburdened of that responsibility. Oh, God. Well, that round ends with Chris with three points and Minty with two, which means Chris has increased his lead to a whopping two points now ahead of Minty. So, Minty, you have got to step it up next round. He's literally doubled his lead. I will say a huge thank you to uh, Yoen for his contribution to that quiz round. That was marvellous. Thank you very much to that man there. Absolutely yeah, super. guy. So, we've had another question come in from the social media sphere. Jason Scott has reached out to us on Facebook and he has said, As an indie game developer, I'm always looking for unique takes on gameplay that I can be inspired by or learn from. So, with that in mind, what are some instances of generally maligned mechanics or level types, but which we have found done well? So, thinking of things like water and ice levels or escort missions stuff like that that is generally a bit of an eye roller of a, of a game mechanic what have we found examples of that, that that make us go actually that was that was pretty good and chris is going to kick us off with his answer to this question i am going to talk about weapon durability mm. because in most games that feature of kind of having degrading weapons is just a massive fucking pain in the ass. <laughs> and like playing the Outer Worlds a couple months back, part of the routine I got into every time I, I found like a new town would be find a vending machine to buy some ammo, then find a workbench to repair all of your weapons that suddenly were only doing half as much damage. Yeah. And it was just really annoying. It felt like an unnecessary step, just like an admin task. But, and, and surely we all know where I'm going to go here, Breath of the Wild proved how to do this mechanic properly <laughs> because in that game, breakable weapons are the reason that combat never gets tired in the 50, 100, 150 hours you're going to play Breath of the Wild for. Yeah. And so so many games, and especially action RPGs, have a kind of soft difficulty curve where things are really tough to begin with, then they get easier as your gear improves, and then often they just kind of stagnate when you're fully beefed up and, and you've collected some god-killing blade that consistently deals a billion damage and it's just it's not a challenge to play anymore and as much as that is fun to be kind of the all-powerful person for a little while it does take something away from kind of the enjoyment of actually you know feeling challenged in a game but with Breath of the Wild the enemies do get tougher but it's not necessarily your gear that helps you survive it's your own cunning and your own nous and you may be carrying a sword that deals super damage but in a tough fight you still need to pick when you're going to use it, or even if you want to use it at all, versus the other weapons you might have in your inventory, your stasis skills, environmental hazards you can manipulate, the weather, uh, even things like how enemies interact with one another, kind of their chemistry between them. And the weapon durability means that the game never ever becomes like press one button to win. Because even when you're 100 hours deep in your quest, there's always peril in every encounter. And it's perfectly possible, even when you're good at the game, to <laughs> die to like a lowly moblin just as much as you might to a, a guardian or, or a lionel because it's yeah. just a very, very, very good game. And every encounter has kind of been considered and, and it's kind of bolstered by this fact that the stuff in your pocket is only going to get you so far. You you have to be able to kind of think on the fly, collect things that you find as you go. Uh, it's, it's just a much more organic way of making you use your surroundings and, and the objects you come across to, to help you fight and survive. 
Yeah, absolutely. Can't argue with that at all. Weapon durability certainly is 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 an element of Monster Hunter that I've been uh, I've been playing a lot of this last week. And um, your weapon loses sharpness as you use it, and it will it will lose more sharpness if you're hitting stuff that's armored. So you really need to be be careful with that, and you need to pick like an opportune moment to get your whetstone out and resharpen your weapon. And uh, at first, I thought, oh god, that's just it's just giving me just something else to do for the sake of it but it's 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 not it's a whole other strategic element that you need to manage uh, and it's done very very well do you do that live like on the battlefield on the fly yeah see that's quite nice i, I can see how that works mm. like if, i don't know if anyone played it zombie u the game that came out the wii u's launch mm. like I, I don't remember if it did anything with durability or not but the one thing that it did well for the wii u was that you would have to do things on the touchpad to organise your inventory and pick up items just whilst the game was still running on the TV. And that kind of fed into giving it a sense of panic because you had to do two things at once. Yeah. And I guess, you know, finding the pockets of time to say, oh, I need to sharpen this sword is a way of making you consider how to just factor that into your approach to, to a fight or whatever. And I think that's quite nice. Yeah, absolutely. It feeds into some of my answer a little bit because I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about water levels and ice levels. And the reason why I think people have an issue with things like weapon durability or people have an issue with water levels is the fact that it adds that level of complexity, but what does it give you in return? And nine times out of ten in water levels, it's just taking away an element of control. All of a sudden, your character becomes harder to control underwater because you're, you know, you're trying to sort of wrestle with with buoyancy, or you've got like a, a time limit on how long you can hold your breath. And taking something away just to make it harder or just to make it different, I don't necessarily think is a good enough reason because <laughs> <laughs> there's something quite lazy about that. You go, oh, this level's not hard enough. Let's put it on ice. And I think the only way that that those types of levels can actually be made good is if they replace what they take away with something else, preferably something better. So if you're able to use, say, buoyancy to jump higher or further, and the level is designed around making you feel that bit more powerful, that's fantastic. Does that sort of make up for having a countdown timer for holding your breath? absolutely not like it's the worst thing it's horrible i've never enjoyed an underwater level where you have to monitor how long you can hold your breath because if you're taking away a level of control on top of adding that there's no way in my mind that you're making a level more enjoyable by having it underwater and ultimately that's what a video game should be doing is is making it something enjoyable Uh, a challenge is part of that but making something that's just annoying is not you know there's only really a couple of examples of water levels done well in my mind i think i spoke about the underwater stealth levels in rayman legends that are done very very well and 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 that's because they pace them very differently so you have very very good control over rayman like very very sort of immediate control he can hold his breath i mean he hasn't got limbs so he probably hasn't got lungs no limbs no lungs that was the mantra <laughs> going into that game i think famously linked yes <laughs> so the way that the levels worked with a sort of stealth element that worked very well because you had to move very considered very short distances that worked well but the main examples I've got for where it's worked so well is it's not really levels, it's just whole games. And recently, a game that I played is Abzu, which I know you played again recently, Chris. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that, that is just an 
absolute joy to control and you're underwater for 95% of that game and it made you feel like you're flying and the fluidity of movement in a full 3D space is something that you don't get if you're playing a, a, a game on land, you know? And so any of the things that you can't do in water that you can do on land, like having, you know, sort of like realistic gravity and jumps and platforming and stuff like that, it's totally made up for by the fact that you've got this incredible free-form movement uh, sensation. Other example that I found is Majora's Mask. And in that you get the Zora Mask transformation, which allows you to move through water so, so well and, you know, really fast, really fluid absolutely superb and it, again crucially what it does is it adds something to your moveset rather than take something away and I think with ice levels ice levels are a very tricky one because the only thing they do is make it harder like it just makes things it makes a normal level slippery and harder to control and the only times I've seen them done well or done in a way that's fun is when they're made as like speed levels in something like Mario Maker, where, I mean, I think I made a couple of them in, in that super world that you both played You through. definitely did. <laughs> and, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I find them really, really fun. And that's that sort of level of speed and momentum is something that you don't get if you don't have ice. And again, going back to Rayman, like the original Rayman on the music levels, uh, the, the levels that were based around staves of music they were slippery and the first level in a zone called Allegro Presto which suitably means you know very fast that was an absolute joy to play because when you got the momentum right of building up this speed slipping down this stuff and then like crouching and sliding under things when you got that right it was so so satisfying I mean that for me is game design done well like I said it's if you're going to employ these mechanics it needs to be adding something to the user experience it needs to be adding something enjoyable it might be taking something away but it needs to make up for that by adding something else minty what shit have you found <laughs> what gold nuggets in shits have i found i decided to talk about auto scrollers and thinking about it i don't know if an auto scroller is a much maligned level outside of perhaps the speed running communities <laughs> they bloody hate it <laughs> they absolutely hate them don't they like you'll watch any any stream and you'll have mitch flower power trying to beat mario 3 world record and says, oh world's one four. Oh, it's the auto scroller <laughs> have we got time for donations <laughs> sort of thing. So, and the thing with auto scrollers is because you can do a level so quickly in the games that you, they feature in, they're so slow comparatively. The camera moves forward as an absolute crawl, and it, it, it does just become a slog. It's, it's, it, it really knocks the wind out of you, really messes up the pace of the game. So when it comes to an auto-scroller done well, for me, there's a couple of good examples. There are the really quick ones that you could make in Mario Maker by uh, choosing the uh, the cheater speed instead of, uh, say, the rabbit who ambles along. Famously ambling creatures there, rabbits. Yeah, yeah. The auto-scrollers that move super quickly and you're there like... like whoop, 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 whoop. Going along at the seat of your pants, like swatting away at things like you're being chased by hornets. It's got that pace, it's snappy, it's quick, and it's, it, 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 it is still fun, but... I think the best use of auto-scrollers is in rhythm games, like, let's say, Guitar Hero, for instance, because you're not moving in the, in the traditional sense. You're getting from one end of the song to another, and during that you're doing um, 
just weird little button inputs and it's 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 less about uh, avoiding a hole and jumping on an enemy it's just a, a straight up complicated series of button inputs that it, it has a place in the auto scrolling if that makes sense like something that's rhythmical and more calculated and more precise i think is the way to do an auto scroller because like you said about water and ice jonathan by not letting you go at your own pace, it's taking something away from platforming games. So completely reworking it and making it a core part of the gameplay, I think, is probably the way to go forward with doing auto-scroller levels. Rayman Legends. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Again, like think about use, using the Guitar Hero analogy, the, the music levels in that game, you have to be jumping at the right time following those button inputs as the game just drags you along. I think that's a really good example that bridges basically what you're just saying minty Mm. having more precise inputs be the thing that becomes the challenge as opposed to just riding the level out yeah it's a good game isn't it yeah and when you nail a music level in rayman legends you feel so fucking good and you have a really great song that you've just basically played yourself yeah (laughs) so there we go uh hopefully that's uh answered your question jason the answer is Rayman. <laughs> if anybody else has got a, a question that you'd like us to answer or something you'd like us to discuss on a future episode, please do get in touch on our social media platforms. So, what have we played this week? As I mentioned earlier, I've played uh, a lot of Monster Hunter Rise and I've actually seen the credits for the main story. There's still Ooh. so much to do though, but I uh, but I have finished. I've beaten the uh, the, the Magnum Allo, which is kind of the uh, the, the story mode's um, sort of big bad monster. And it, it's just great. It's really good fun. It's very, very satisfying. It has got a very satisfying gameplay loop of, you know, just hunting, crafting, rinsing and repeating like i said last week i've I've been so slowly sort of figuring out what how to utilize other areas of the game and introduce that to sort of like help finding like items that i need for crafting or uh training up my my buddies my palicos and my palamutes and all kinds of stuff it's just yeah it's just really satisfying it's it's like when 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 you know what you're doing it's quite mindless in a very good way in the fact that it's, it's just quite therapeutic you can just kind of be like right no i'm just gonna go and hunt this i know what to do but but boom done that okay need to do that again or you know try and try and defeat this monster slightly differently or try and capture this monster instead of killing it so that i can get a different material from it to make this sword that i'm trying to get and the one thing i will say is that i have i have played a fair bit of online co-op stuff and it is incredibly easy to do and that's always the thing that's that's often scared me about doing online stuff especially with people i don't know is uh, it's just going to be complicated or i'm going to be thrown in and, and i'm going to be at a different level to the other people or, and i won't know what i'm doing and i won't know what they're doing and they're going to make fun of me but it is <laughs> it's so so well designed in terms of like checking off like the quests that you need to do in the hub mode which is like the the online sort of co-op stuff and then just jumping into a session with some other people or starting a session on your own and having other people jump in it's yeah it's absolutely brilliant and it is really good fun it's very very satisfying when you've just got you know four people and the palamutes all just attacking like a massive dragon and the dragon is escaping and then you're all chasing after it and you're on your wire bugs like jumping across the land it's fantastic yeah i i really i'm so so glad that i got it and i'm I'm certainly going to be playing it for another few days until skyward sword comes out and then i'm going to play skyward sword and i can't wait for that and then i I think i'll probably pick up monster hunter stories too the new one that's just come out on the switch which is more of a you know sort of 
straightforward RPG, but with Monster Hunter mechanics in there, which looks very, very good. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to playing that as well. And I have played, I played one other little thing, which is a new little Picross game called Pictui, which has come from a developer called Atui, who are the developers that made such things as Zeo Drifter and Mutant Muds. It's a tough thing because, I mean, it's difficult this day and age to see how you can really get a Picross game wrong. Like the core formula is so established thanks to, I mean, mainly thanks to Jupiter's continual refinement of it. But there are, there are so many little nuances of control that go into making the Picross experience functional and fun. Little details that you probably don't notice uh, until they're not there. Uh, and unfortunately, Pictui is a game that has made me realise just how much better most other companies have made Picross games. And it, it's it's not that it's a bad game. It, it's a pleasant enough Picross game with lots of puzzles and you get a nice piece of trivia relating to the puzzle you've just solved upon completion. So it's got a nice like educational slant to it as well, where it leans into that with its its marketing, billing it as very much a brain training game as much as a Picross game. So like you have like a little brain age statistic that slowly increases the more puzzles you do and, and the more you reduce your overall completion time of the puzzles. It also gives you like a calendar to tick off doing a puzzle every day. But all of these features are kind of flawed in some way. Like having a day to tick off on a calendar kind of feels a little bit pointless if there isn't like a daily challenge to complete. Like so if you've completed all the puzzles, then you have to replay one that you've already done to get the daily stamp. So why not have like a revolving door of daily challenges to play? And then that would be like a nice little daily mission you could do. Even even if you're doing nothing else, log on, do a 20 by 20 puzzle and that will in- increase your brain age. Or having like an overall timer statistic based around your total completion time of, of all the levels. It's good because it's like something you can sort of slowly try and reduce uh, by sort of, you know, getting better times on the levels after you've done them. But that's entirely negated by the fact that the game has insanely long loading times. It's a game that could be billed as like a relaxing game that you don't need to rush. And and that would in some way excuse the loading times. (laughs) But it doesn't because it's encouraging you to do them as quickly as possible. And that's so, so frustrating not being able to do that. Genuinely, an entire hunting ground in Monster Hunter loads quicker than one Picross puzzle. Oh God! It's a real oversight. I, I really, I really don't know why. I, you know, it might, like I said, it might be a design choice. So it's, it's trying to be this nice, relaxing experience that sort of nice slow fade ins and fade outs and menus. But like I said, it just contradicts with trying to get a better time, which is one of the things the game's asking you to do. And even though it's it's nice to get like a little piece of trivia about something when you complete a puzzle. But then you can't view that piece of trivia after you've beaten the level, unless you beat the level entirely again. So, like, on the menu, when you can see the levels that you've completed, surely you'd just be able to go over it, even just hovering it, and and the, the bit of trivia comes up, so that you've, you've got that nice, that nice fact, and you can just browse through these facts. It's just the little things that aren't there. One of the other things that is crucial to being able to complete a level quickly is there's no wraparound control of of when you're selecting squares. So if you're selecting a square on the side of the puzzle, like on the far left-hand side, if you press left, you don't immediately jump to the right-hand side of the puzzle. You just can't go anywhere. You have to hold down right, scroll across the entire puzzle to get to what is essentially, you know, it feels like a neighbouring box, even though it's on the other side. And that's not a huge issue, especially in like the 5x5 puzzles. But in the 20x20 puzzles, that's a fair bit of time taken just to 
just to select a square is not a long thing. It's not like going, oh, I can't believe they've made me wait two seconds to highlight that square. But when you're when you're in that in that zone, you really want to be able to 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 battle these levels at the pace that your brain is is processing them. And not being able to do that is incredibly frustrating. Like I said, it's just it's 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 little things, but it's lots of little things that sort of add up. To, and, and and when you've got as many Pecross games to choose from on the Switch, on the 3DS, even on iPhone with that fantastic Konami Picross collection, this is not going to be the game that I go to to play Picross. And I, I hope, I really hope that they patch some of these smaller things out because it's got the potential to be a really nice little game and a great alternative to the ones that Jupiter are offering. And it's obviously it's great to support an indie company as well, especially, you know, a company as, as good as this. It feels like it wouldn't take much to sharpen the game up. If they're taking on a bit of feedback, a bit of constructive criticism, then um, yeah, hopefully it will turn out to be a nice, a nice little game. Same. Minty, what have you played this week? I'll give you three guesses. Digimon Cyber Sleuth Stories. What's it called? Uh, <laughs> I think it's called Cyber Story Digimon Sleuth. Crouching Digimon Hidden Sleuth. Mm. I still don't quite know um, what's going on, how far I am from the end. Um, the, 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 ro- the Royal Knight Digimon have now turned up and are threatening to destroy humanity. So I'm... I'm so I'm wandering around cyberspace trying to find them and bring them over to our cause, which is not letting the Royal Knights destroy humanity. <laughs> Filling out the uh, the roster of all the Digimon, the field guide, that's taking priority for me at the moment. Um, I'm trying to build up a, a good and solid end game team at the moment. Instead of getting to a certain level and then evolving, a Digimon needs to have uh, certain stats. So you can't just say, oh, uh, I'm just going to put you in a daycare and you're going to be uh, level 50 in this time and then I can evolve you. You have to work on their stats and if something is particularly speedy, they might get the uh, the necessary stat points to become a speedier uh, Digimon. Yeah, it's cool because everything could digivolve into maybe three or four different things. It really does remind you of the little Tamagotchis like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to, what's going to happen if I take care of this this way and that way. I have been toying with the idea of seeing if I can find one of the old retro Tamagotchis and seeing if I can make a decent go of it again. Because I remember whenever I used to have those little things, I didn't really have a concept of controlling your little pet's diet. Whenever they evolved and got bigger, I'd always feed them to make them 99 pounds, which is the heaviest they could be. And I always wondered why they never lasted more than three days. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, now that I get it... Maybe I'll go back and see if I can uh, get the good one now. But I'd like to thank Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth for opening my eyes to that uh, part of my life, which I now realise I was lacking in. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, how about you? What has your gaming week consisted of? I've played quite a bit this week, owing to having to self-isolate for the last seven days after a positive case at work. Ah, not positive, not positive. No, it'll it'll be interesting to listen back to any of these episodes in a few years where hopefully the world is in a very different place than it is now. And and some of these little just mentions of our everyday lives at the moment are hopefully going to sound really alien, but you never know. But yeah, so having a bit of extra time, it's not that I've just spent the entire time sat on my ass. I I have been working every day, but it's amazing how much time you claw back when you're not commuting for two hours a day there's a lot of work faff, you know, time when you're in work where you're just having a 15 minute break where in your head you're like, be nice to just be sat at home doing something fun right now. But anyway, 
I beat Renzo Racer. Oh, God. <laughs> nothing, nothing to say about that no. one. It is what it is. I also beat the main story of Little Nightmares with Georgia. We played it together. Oh, and I, yeah. I can't remember if we've mentioned it on the show before or if we just were, were talking kind of, you know, outside of a recording. But when I tried to play it previously, I, I kind of stopped after a point for reasons I'll mention in a minute, but actually giving it a proper go, it's a very good cinematic platformer, a la, you know, Play Dead's games like Limbo or Inside. It's not as good as those, but it is it is strong. <laughs> it's got a really compelling story. It's got really deep inferred lore, you know, the kind of environmental storytelling we all love. It's got beautiful visuals, which take kind of aesthetic influence from mainly, I think, the films of, uh, you know, like Laker Studios, like Paranorman or, or Kupo, oh, yeah. as, as well yeah, as yeah, yeah. like Henry Selick stuff, like James the Giant Peach or Coraline. It's, it's a really strong package. And the Switch port looks and plays really well. But the, the huge caveat, which is the reason I dropped it before, the loading times are insane. So maybe this is just something we're going to talk about a lot today in this episode because of that Picross <laughs> game as well. Like for a game that's built around a certain level of trial and error, it can be absolutely maddening to die, wait about a full minute to reload, die, wait, die, wait. The main game is probably like, I don't know, three or four hours long, but it probably took six or seven in real time. Jesus. Which... <laughs> is is bananas absolutely bananas i'm onto the dlc chapters now which are included with the switch release and it's basically a parallel story that runs adjacent to the main adventure and again it's really good i'm, I'm about halfway through that at the moment really enjoying it for collectors like me the switch version is is still the version to grab because it's got all this extra stuff on the cartridge like all the dlc stuff is just packed in with the game but for anyone who wants to enjoy the game to its fullest get it elsewhere honestly <laughs> like pick it up on the playstation network on the xbox on steam whatever like i know you attempted to play it a long time ago jonathan as well and dropped it for the same reason no no I, i've continued to play it it's just it's just hasn't loaded yet <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I'd, I'd highly recommend grabbing it on like a sale if you see it on any digital store because i think for you in particular for some of your interests you'd really love it you know, it's got a few little spooks that I just about got through. There was only one time when I was playing it the other day that I had to pause the game for five minutes because it made me jump so much. But it's all right. We got there. We got there. I also beat a game called Poi on the Switch. Poi is an indie take on the Mario 64 formula. And despite having a few rough edges, it's pretty decent. And for what it's worth, as a mid-90s throwback platformer, I sure as hell enjoyed it more than the first ukulele yeah that's for sure and it's it's not super pricey uh to 100 percent it i think it took me around 10 11 hours maybe mm. and really the whole time i was just thinking i bet minty would enjoy this <laughs> for, for pretty much the whole game because i think it's right up your alley as like it's not as good as the n64 classics but it is varied and it's challenging at points and it looks and sounds pretty solid. And overall, I think it's a really fair choice for anyone that's expended all the Mario titles on the machine, but still wants to hop about collecting cogs and medallions in, in mini open worlds. Like really early on in this show, do you remember when I talked about a game called Car Quest? And I said it was kind of sort of N64 inspired and Minty's ears went, oh. <laughs> and then when I said it wasn't very good, you're like, oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I think Poi is, is worth a blast. Um, I think you'd enjoy it. Lastly, I finally started Samus Returns. Oh, fantastic. Uh, on the 3DS. Yes. And I won't say, I won't say too much because I'm only an hour or so in, but it is a very cool game. 
a very very cool isn't game it, isn't it just yeah and and if anything it actually makes me a bit sad knowing that dread won't look as cool without the stereoscopic 3d yeah every time like i, I leave the 3ds for a few weeks i come back and i play something and it just it warms my heart it really does like i, I love the console so much and from the intro onwards it's a real showcase for the handheld like I've, I've been taking screenshots as i play but when you view them flat they just they don't have the same depth oh yeah and uh, yeah i i think as, as much as dread i hope will be a, a great experience and I'll, I'll enjoy it and whatever else it's not going to be the same and, and that is a little bit sad i am very bad at this game <laughs> very bad at samus returns it is far more combat heavy than zero mission Hopefully by next week, I will have started to get the hang of that a little bit better. So when I talk about it again, I would have made a bit more progress. But a, a big part of the game is kind of reacting to enemies flying at you, you know, sort of timing-based challenges for your melee attacks. And I miss them 95% of the time. And I really feel like I should be better by now. And it's just not not quite happening. So this is another another reason on the pile of Chris would not be very good at Dark Souls that, that we've mentioned many <laughs> times over the years. For some reason, I just don't have the reflexes for that sort of thing. Don't know why, because, you know, there's lots of quick, twitchy games I'm quite good at, but just not combat for whatever reason. So, would you like to hear what my fourth favourite video game of all time is? I really would. Yes, I would. Steve Jobs famously said of consumers that they don't know what they want. That Apple built the Mac for themselves, first and foremost. Uh, They would be the judge of whether it was good or not, because customers don't know what they want until you show it to them and to take another quote this time from men in black uh, and it's a quote that i <laughs> thought uh, about a lot in the last few years when uh, when tommy lee jones is challenged by will smith saying that people are smart and could handle knowing about extraterrestrial life tommy lee jones responds saying a person is smart people are dumb and panicky And the internet has only made this scenario so, so much worse by giving idiots uh, platforms to voice their stupid opinions and a facade to hide behind, uh, leading to their vile behaviour being entirely abhorrent and uh, mob mentality leading the way. People don't know what they want. They may think they do, but when they're given that, it's often criticised as being fan service, which is another ridiculous term that's come into the sort of public vernacular in the last few years like surely a big element of why you make something is for your fans to enjoy it but when a creator sticks to their guns you're much more likely to see something that is new and exciting rather than a rehash of, of what's come before take a look at the star wars sequel trilogy it's it's a mixed bag uh, a whole wealth of people absolutely shunned ryan johnson's subversive take on the franchise with the last jedi because they wanted everyone to be related uh, in a convenient family tree or you know it didn't quite marry up with the the ideas of of certain characters in their heads and so jj abrams returned to deliver essentially what they wanted in the third film uh, but the trouble is people people didn't want a new star wars they wanted to watch the old star wars uh, and and so when jj tried to find a compromise between these two takes you were left with the very definition of cinematic mediocrity <laughs> i love it when people stick to their guns and prove audiences wrong like you see it a lot with casting decisions in movies such as heath ledger in the dark knight michael keaton in tim burton's batman or Adam Sandler in Punch Drunk Love, uh, where like a whole crowd of people would claim that the creators didn't know what they were doing, only to later find out 
that they did. But when a whole film or a whole game decides to go in a totally different direction, regardless of what audiences appear to be crying out for, that's always exciting. Does it always work? Absolutely not. Like when we wanted, I mean, this is a quite a Rayman heavy uh, episode, but when we wanted another Rayman game, Ubisoft churned out a dozen Rayman and Rabbids games. We did not want that. <laughs> but then, you know, when we were clamoring after, say, Wario Land 5, Nintendo instead gave us WarioWare, which is something we didn't even know we wanted. It's, it's swings and roundabouts. And my game today is probably the best example of a company taking a real whiplash-inducing artistic turn that not only angered pretty much their entire fan base, but then subsequently proved them entirely wrong and left them weeping their apologies into their respective beards. When Nintendo first revealed the extraordinary cel-shaded art style of The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker... (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. People were up in arms that they weren't getting the next-gen realistic style Zelda teased the previous year uh, at E3. No, it wasn't E3. It was the Space Station. Was it called? The Games Showcase? I don't know. Space World? Yes, Space World. Space World, with their the Link versus Ganondorf tech demo showcasing the power of the GameCube. I, I, I genuinely can't remember what camp I was in when I first saw the footage. I remember being absolutely fascinated by the art style. I'd never seen anything like it before. I'd, I'd never seen the level of personality and expression on a character's face in a video game before, uh, which utterly blew me away. Like, I remember that shot of Link's little face being illuminated subtly by fireflies and you know, being suddenly aware of how extraordinary the lighting was in the game. I remember seeing, like, the the design of Ganondorf and thinking, I can't even see a face in there. Like, it's so... This is so different to anything I expected. But at this point, I, I hadn't owned a proper console Zelda game. I played Ocarina of Time with our mutual friend Chris Dev, and he <laughs> showed me a bit of Majora's Mask. My personal experience of Zelda was entirely with the Game Boy games, Link's Awakening, the Oracle games... And this vision of Zelda in Wind Waker actually seemed to fit in pretty well with that style of game. It was taking the whimsical, childlike sense of fairy tale from the Game Boy games and merging it with the grand spectacle and extra dimension of the 3D Zelda games on the N64. I remember seeing reports in Nintendo Official Magazine starting to come in from writers who had started to have hands-on experience with the game. I remember reading things like, uh, oh, it's got the lighting of a Pixar film, or the Great Seas is literally a million times bigger than Hyrule Field. (laughs) (laughs) not literally true but the scale of this game is something that my my little head couldn't comprehend at the time but i was absolutely ravenous to play it i was so excited for the game to come out i I remember the day it arrived it arrived complete with the ocarina of time and ocarina of time master quest bonus disc and it also arrived the same time as a marillion dvd that i'd really been looking forward to getting now Unfortunately, these both arrived as I had a friend over at my house. Um, I I'd promised a, another classmate of ours, Chris, that I would help him with his GCSE music composition, which was a variation of When the Saints Go Marching In. <laughs> Our friend was a chap called Corin Haynes Pateman, and with the help of my brother Alex, we did indeed assemble a track entitled When Corin Goes Marching In. What a banger. It was a bit of a banger. I'll say this as an aside. Wasn't a patch on my own variations that I put together, which included a riff on the music from Sandopolis Zone from Sonic and Knuckles. Naturally. Anyway, when our work was done, I was free to sit down, put that tiny little golden disc into my GameCube and start on what felt like my first proper 3D Zelda adventure. And I was treated to the most oh, the most atmospheric of beginnings to set out the story. Not only was there just like this delightful flute work on on the title screen that contains significantly more whimsy and colour than previous Zelda title screens. But when you start your game, you're treated to 
just just a harpsichord accompanying this tableau setting out the premise of the game it felt ancient and epic and the music is just so deeply brilliant the way it introduces the main zelda theme with like almost hieroglyphic images of the hero of time just like my goodness like it was such a rousing experience like beyond belief like especially when you start to realize that actually the story that it's telling of the hero of time this this may well have been you from a previous zelda game and then the legend of this hero fades into history and history fades into myth and so your adventure begins like i've said this about several games that are in my top 10 that there's not a single part of this game that hasn't had a significant amount of attention paid to it every blade of grass every silly little pig the ridiculous faces on the children scuttling around the bigger islands the amount of character work that's gone into even the most minor of acquaintances just the sheer level of detail on the face of Link and the main characters expressing so much with such simple looks that conveys the emotions of the character and the story beats all in one. Like the pure satisfaction of the cell-shaded explosions that emanate from every bomb blast and every explosion. I can't even tell you why I could look at them on a loop all day, but I absolutely could. It is a phenomenally well-designed game from top to bottom. It is flawless. The bright colours of this cell-shaded world elevate every aspect of it like you've never seen a sea as blue as this in your life and when you set sail on the great sea for the first time you conduct the wind to your bidding with the titular wind waker baton and that music rises like no matter how much time you spend on the sea in the game and to be fair you do spend a lot of time on it it always feels so epic like at once overwhelming and inviting the brightness of the searchlights in the darkness of the Forsaken Fortress make it very clear where you need not to be. And like the colour and the vibrancy of the fire and lava inside the volcano, is it's almost playful if it weren't for how deadly it was. And the absence of colour as well, when you dive deep beneath the sea to find the remains of Hyrule Castle frozen in time. My goodness. Like the impact of that moment is felt so tangibly with such simplicity. Just seeing the bright green of Link's tunic sticking out against the grayscale surroundings is just... It really makes you feel like you're existing out of time in a way that I've never seen in a game before. It's, it's genius. Like We've used Wind Waker as an example before of how when you commit to an art style more than committing to attaining a level of realism, you guarantee that it will age better. Yeah. And Wind Waker is the perfect example because even the original GameCube game looks absolutely stunning to this day, almost a, a bafflingly 20 years after its release. <laughs> I'm so glad that Nintendo have never fully gone down that realistic line with Zelda games. Even Twilight Princess has a definite artistic twist to it that saves it from being entirely, you know, the realistic Zelda game that fans were initially clamouring for. And Skyward Sword has that gorgeous, like, painterly style. And Breath of the Wild having its own take on the cel-shaded art style. Like, artistically and aesthetically... I think that Wind Waker is the best that there is. For me, it's only been rivaled recently with Sea of Thieves, which... I imagine is what Wind Waker would probably look like if it were developed for PS5 today. It's a singular vision that absolutely delivers. I think the thing that really sets this game apart for me is the sense of exploration and adventure. I just loved sailing the high seas, finding all these new islands and discovering what secrets they held in them. It could be a little settlement, it could be an ancient temple, it could be a treasure trove, it could be a pirate outpost. Like, I think I've played through the game in its entirety, I think four times. And every time I've always enjoyed scouting every square on the map, finding that little cartographic fish that helps you plot your map, hunting down all the heart pieces and hidden treasures. It's just a wonderfully liberating experience. It feels like you can do anything and go anywhere. And the dungeons themselves, of which there are only a few, 
are all brilliant and enormous. Like, I'm kind of glad that there aren't more because they are so huge and expansive. The wind temple in the game is, is the one that always sticks in my mind from this game, where you're having to channel different air currents to float on with your Deku leaf. It, it, it's definitely like in the same camp as the water temple from Ocarina of Time in terms of its complexity. But I also love the Tower of the Gods, which when you raise it from the seabed serves as a totem for the literally the entire world. Like you can pretty much see it from any corner of the great sea you sail to. And the music is always there to underpin all of the environments with such character. I'll always love the music on Dragon Roost Island. Hearing that feels like coming home. It's just, it's so lovely. And then on the opposite side, you've got this oppressive, almost dissonant music in Hyrule Castle that sends shivers up my spine to this day. I was listening to the soundtrack, writing this, and oh, it's just, it's amazing. I think so much of my love of this game comes down to the time that I owned it. Like I said, it felt like the first 3D Zelda game that I had ownership of. Like it came at a time in my life when I was old enough to be trusted to like manage my own daily routine. I could stay in or go out, knuckle down, do homework, kick back, settle some scores on Monkey Ball, whatever. And this meant that I could fully dive into this game as much as I liked. It was sort of the same time as when like Harry Potter books were still coming out. And, you know, I would forego everything else in my life just to dedicate my entire time to reading those. I had no problem with putting everything else aside just to explore and complete this game 100%. Apart from one little element of the game, which is those insane picto box challenges, which saw you having to take in-game photos of, 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 of literally everything in the game. I don't think I ever actually completed that <laughs> because there were several like missable ones that you couldn't go back and get afterwards. And I think like... I think on my second playthrough of the game where like you well I remember you could choose to play in Link's blue starting outfit I think I missed taking a picture of like the dragon on Dragon Roost Island or something and then I couldn't go back to do it 100% so I was like well I'm not going to bother then and, and back then I had no issues with with some of the game's shortcomings which I've read about later and come to realize were there the fact that the end fetch quest gathering the triforce fragments went on far too long that between that and the rupee gating of the treasure maps needed to find them was a way of elongating the adventure to make up for the couple of dungeons that the development team didn't get to finish if ever a game was going to be criticized for having too much water it's not generation three pokemon it would be this game <laughs> but like i said I, I didn't mind it as a kid at all i had all the time i needed to slowly search out you know the pieces of treasure and the time and investment it took to get them all it made them all feel just oh, just so much more victorious when i did find them I must say, though, that the enhancements made in the HD remake that we got on the Wii U eight years ago, it absolutely improved the game in literally every way. The art style was exactly the same. The lighting was updated and the resolution was obviously modernised. And the game looks absolutely stunning. There was a new faster sail added to help speed up the Great Sea exploration. Triforce fragment quests were condensed, but it all, it all felt organic. It didn't feel crowbarred in or simplified. There were some lovely additional features added in as well, especially for the Picto box. You can now take selfies, which took full advantage of like the extensive expressional range of Link in the game. And you could also save up to 12 pictures at once instead of three in the original, which was that was probably another reason why I didn't complete that challenge, because like every time well you have to sail back to the picto man every three pictures you took which meant the fetch quest took a lot longer than you <laughs> probably like and it meant that you were more likely to miss things because you didn't have space to save the pictures or whatever and there were also some nice features that linked it into the Miiverse. Oh, remember the Miiverse? Oh. I know. <laughs> and like you would stumble across messages in bottles from other players from like around the world. They contain like messages or hints or some pictures they'd taken. And that was just another way of making this world that was already brimming with life feel so much more 
alive. Like it, it really is. It's an incredible world to explore and it feels so wonderful to do so. Like you can feel the wind in your hair and the ocean spray on your face. It's 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 boundless adventure. For me, it's a sensation that has only been I mean, vaguely matched by Sea of Thieves or, or watching Moana, to be honest. <laughs> that gives me I love that. The game also crucially feels incredible to play. Like they've they really updated the combat in this game over Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. Like the groundbreaking Z targeting is still present, allowing you to lock onto enemies and stay focused on them in a 3D space. But there are now different weapons that you can pick up and fight with, enemies you can disarm and, and you know use them against them. Enemies with weak spots that you need to dodge, roll around, and exploit different combos that see you jumping over them, bouncing off the top of their heads, and loads of different things. And this was also the first time in a game that I'd seen, you know, I, I, I can't remember what the name of the effect is, but it's that like little freeze frame delay used to accentuate contact being made. It's like hit stun, I think they normally call it. Hit stun, that's it, yes. So when like you land a crucial blow, you, you really feel the impact of that. It felt like it was stunning you as it jarred your subconscious and, and, and made the action in the game feel so tangible and fluid and exciting. And this extends to the boss fights as well, which are absolutely brilliant. They follow the same pattern of Zelda bosses before it and, you know, sees you use the item that you gained in that dungeon to undo the boss of it. But the size and scale of these bosses was, was something that I hadn't experienced before. They were gargantuan. And likewise, the arenas you fought them in were so expansive, making you feel so incredibly small. And, and you know, then meant that every victory you, you, you got made you feel like David besting Goliath. And there is not a boss fight in the Zelda series, or possibly in any series, that ends with such an iconic moment as the final fight in this game. It is a true moment of spectacle and awe-inspiring wonder. You could not ask for a better or more epic end to one of the greatest games ever made. This game looks incredible, it feels incredible to play, it sounds incredible. There are so many features in the game that are not only useful, but incredibly fun to use. There's not an inch of the game that isn't absolutely drenched in charm. And I think that, obviously, whilst Breath of the Wild is undoubtedly the best Zelda game that has been made, I mean, possibly the best game that, that's been made, there isn't a Zelda game closer to my heart than The Wind Waker, and it will take something extraordinary for it to be usurped. And in fairness to Nintendo... It's probably not something they can do uh, on their own. It would have to coincide with the alignment of, of many different areas of my life to land the poignance that Wind Waker did. But something Nintendo are in control of is porting it to the mother-chuffing Switch for me to experience again. And <laughs> my goodness, how good would it look on the OLED screen I've just pre-ordered? I mean, and for the billions of people that never owned a Wii U, I would dearly love for them all to experience, you know, the definitive version of this game. And I'll say this now... I'll happily commit to completing that Picto Box challenge 100% if they do port it to the Switch. You have my word on that. <laughs> Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker, the ninth and final Zelda game to appear in my list, and my fourth favourite video game of all time, gentlemen. Bloody hell. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Wonderful. So, there we go. That was my fourth favourite video game of all time, and it was The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker. Bleeding hell. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if you've enjoyed any of our other episodes, please do share the podcast on your social media platforms and reach out to us on ours. Link tr.ee forward slash o3c podcast you can find the links to our facebook page our instagram page our youtube channel twitch and every other platform that we occupy in the online sphere or you could reach out to us individually i'm on twitter at jonathan dunn i am forever at chaz underscore hodges and i'm clement underscore boom and if you're really enjoying what we're doing then please do check out our patreon page and see what you could get for supporting us a little bit more you can get a lot 
for not much support. It's 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 a good deal for you, honestly. Check it out. <laughs> Patreon.com slash R3 cents. And please do join us next week for a, a very special episode where we will be celebrating the 35th anniversary of Aliens. And we have got a special dedicated to Alien Isolation, where we will be joined by the superb Kezia Burrows, who portrays Amanda Ripley in that game. And we'll be discussing, well, obviously we'll be discussing Alien Isolation. Uh, you'll be pleased to know that I made Chris and Minty play through it, so you can hear how much it spooked them. Buckle up. And we also dive into the other performance work that Kezia's done in other video games, such as Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, Remember Me, all the way up to Bravely Default 2. It is a cracking episode so we look forward to sharing that with you next week and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor fans of video games history or video game history will definitely want to listen to retronauts each week bob mackey and myself that's jeremy parish dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hi, Stu. Hi, Luke. Do you fancy doing a podcast covering every segment of every episode of the beloved 90s cartoon Animaniacs? No, I hate Animaniacs. Join me, Luke, the Warner lover, and him, Stu, the Warner resistor, for Animaniacs, covering every segment of every episode of the hit 90s cartoon Animaniacs, as well as its many spin-offs, including comics, video games, and the movie, not to mention the recent reboot. It's gonna be explainy to the max. Oh... 